You're listening to Good Hustle, a podcast about bad teams. I'm Andrew Mackey. I took a trip to mentally prepare myself for this week's episode and visited the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Even though I've lived in Ohio for some time, I've never made the trip, probably because I'm a Lions fan and assume there wouldn't be much for me there. And it was still a pretty cool experience, and I'm happy to say it put me in the football mood. With preseason in full swing and hard knocks on our televisions, it's safe to say, in the words of the parted my take folks, that football is back. I also want to take this moment to thank everyone for their support and the love shown to the show after the Anchor Listener Support launch. I want to include a special thanks to the show's first donations, which we received from Near, Sarah, Michael, and Duncan. It's a pretty cool feeling to have people backing this show with their own dollars. So if you're interested in supporting Good Hustle like these folks, you can visit anchor.fm slash goodhustle to contribute. So in honor of the Pro Football Hall of Fame visit, we're going to explore the birth of professional football in America. The early years of playing in parks where the biggest teams in the league were in cities like Canton, Decatur, Buffalo, Akron, and Dayton. So are you ready for some football? Because this is episode 10 of Good Hustle, the 1920 American Professional Football Association. Chapter 1, A Car Dealership in Canton. Prior to the American Professional Football Association, there were several other loose professional organizations that played the game. Most of the American Professional Football Association teams came from either the Ohio League or the New York Pro Football League. A little bit of background on these. The Ohio League was an informal and loose association of American football teams active between 1902 and 1919. They competed for the Ohio Independent Championship. The Massillon Tigers were the dominant team, having won six championships during this time. Other big teams in the Ohio League included Massillon's rival, the three-time league champion Canton Bulldogs, and in fact in 1919 they had just won the league. The Columbus Panhandles, and the 1918 champion, the Dayton Triangles. The Ohio League had tried to expand previously, but they couldn't really come to an agreement with an organization in western Pennsylvania to form a football association, sort of like what you see over in England with soccer teams. By 1904, they had given up on the agreement. The New York Pro Football League was based in upstate New York and primarily in the western part of the state. It was the other large league that played American football in the United States. The teams were largely clustered around the cities of Rochester and Buffalo, New York. Rochester, New York in particular, had a really strong reputation with a lot of people playing the game. Its most popular local team was the Jeffersons, which was instrumental in bringing together the New York Pro Football League and the Ohio League. On August 20th, 1920, at a meeting attended by representatives of four Ohio League teams, which were Ralph Hay and Jim Thorpe, the famous Jim Thorpe, the two-time Olympian. They were there for the Canton Bulldogs. Jimmy O'Donnell and Stan Kofal were there for the Cleveland Tigers. Carl Stork was there on behalf of the Dayton Triangles. And Frank Neald and Art Rainey were there for the Akron Pros. So these guys all got together and decided to have a meeting in which they were going to form a new league. 
and they decided to call their league the American Professional Football Conference. The major issues here were they wanted to introduce a salary cap for the teams and would not sign college players nor players under contract with another team. This is the foundation of professional football in the United States. According to the Canton Evening Repository, the purpose of the league was to raise the standard of professional football in every league possible, to eliminate bidding for players between rival clubs, and to secure cooperation in the formation of schedules. Okay, sounds good. Collusion against the players and a uniform schedule. The representatives of the league then contacted other major professional teams and invited them to a second meeting on September 17th. The second meeting would be held at Canton Bulldogs owners Ralph Hayes' automobile showroom in Canton, Ohio. At this meeting, we had representatives from the Rock Island Independents, the Muncie Flyers, the Decatur Staleys, the Racine Cardinals, also known as the Chicago Cardinals, the Massillon Tigers, the Chicago Tigers, and the Hammond Pros. And these teams were all asked to join the new league. Representatives from the Western New York teams, the Buffalo All-Americans, and the Rochester Jeffersons couldn't make the meeting, but they sent letters to Hay saying, hey, we'd like to play some football. The representatives decided to change the name slightly of the league to the American Professional Football Association and elected their officers, installing Jim Thorpe as the president. Under the new league's structure, teams would create their own schedules dynamically as the season progressed, so there were no minimum or maximum games required to play. Also, representatives of each team would vote to determine the winner of the APFA trophy. The regular season schedule was not fixed by the league, so hey, play whoever you want. The idea being that as the season progressed, the good teams would play other good teams, which is a good concept, except for early in the season, this would go very, very badly for one of the teams. Now, we're a long way away from the modern day NFL with player contracts and you know television and instant replay. The American Professional Football Association would play their first ever game at a site near Ridge Avenue and DeWeese Parkway in Dayton, Ohio. During this first game between league teams, the Dayton Triangles would meet the Columbus Panhandles on October 3, 1920 at Triangle Park in Dayton. It's called this because it's at the intersection of three major factories within the Dayton area. And in fact, a lot of the players came from those factories. To give you an indication of the finances involved, each player would get about $50 to play in the game. The admission price for the crowd of 4,000 people was $1.75 per ticket. While the week before, Rock Island had kicked off the AFPA season with an emphatic 48 to nothing stumping of their opponent, the St. Paul Ideals, that game isn't recognized because it wasn't a league game. Columbus and Dayton this is a league game. The day before, on Friday, October 2nd, the Dayton Evening Herald offered some insight, saying that when the triangles stack up against the panhandles Sunday afternoon at Triangle Park, they will find pitted against each other a former Ohio State player. The fellow's name is Reeves. At least that's the name he's playing under. And this is a great part. He's playing under that name because of a parental objection to professional football. He's a college graduate, and his parents don't like that he's playing football. The Evening Herald would continue, He is an end, and was classed as one of the best in the Western Conference. He played on the Ohio State team for three years, and completed his course last June. Followers of Ohio State activity should be able to tell who the new panhandle end is. 
The Dayton Triangles also had their own collegiate player to help boost their chances. Chuck Helvey was a former Indiana Hoosier star who was playing in a Dayton Triangles uniform for his second season. The Dayton Evening Herald would report that he wrote Carl Stork, the owner, and said that he would be in for Sunday's game, that he's in good shape and ready to do battle. Bringing in ringers was a pretty common practice back in the early Ohio League and AFPA days. The Evening Herald would continue that Two other out-of-town men will be here for the game and will tote the ball for the triangles. George Rowdenbush will play a halfback and will come here directly from Oberlin, where he is to referee the game Saturday. Mike Hauser, who is managing a jewelry store in a city from Kentucky, will be here to take his place at tackle. The Dayton Evening Herald also reported that this rivalry game to kick off the new league would be a popular attraction. They reported that seat sales had large numbers, and such is the case at various triangle factories. If a good football day can be had, the park should be swarmed with fans who want to get their first glimpse of the Dayton Triangles this season and a look at the strong panhandle combination. The Saturday newspaper sported a large headline, Triangles Panhandles to Open Sunday. The Herald would describe a struggle between two giants. The panhandles came here with the best team they ever turned out, and it's mighty fortunate the triangles were so well fortified. The game was cleanly played neither side resorting to any rough tactics. And there wasn't one argument in the entire game. Time was taken out on a few occasions, so the game was all that could be asked in football. The Triangles defeated the Panhandles 14-0, with a score in the third quarter and fourth quarter heroics. The Evening Herald would recount, quote, The punt sailed over Bacon's head and he ran around catching it on the bounce. He started towards the Panhandle goal from his own 35-yard line. He outran the two nearest men, and then Abril cut down another foe. Bacon shook off one tackler and dodged two more. And with the field clear, he outran the panhandle defensive quarter and negotiated the 65 yards for the touchdown. That's pretty good sports writing. The triangles showed up as well. They were pitted against a strong team, but they displayed a great deal of class. The Herald's headline on Monday told the tale to the city at large. Large crowd sees local team humble Columbus 11. Chapter 2 The Magnificent 11. The same day that the Dayton Triangles beat the Columbus Panhandles, the second game in the league's history was played. The Rock Island Independents defeated the Muncie Flyers 45 0 at Douglas Park. 3,100 fans were in attendance as Arnie Winan, a former University of Minnesota player, made his debut for the Rock Island Independence. He scored three touchdowns. The performance was so bad for Muncie that their opponent the following week, the Decatur Staleys, would actually cancel their game, choosing to play the Kiwani Walworths. Kiwani was not even an APFA team. But the Staleys considered them to be better. So they wanted to play them. Muncie would try to schedule a game against the Cleveland Tigers three weeks later, but that game was canceled because Cleveland decided to play the Columbus Panhandles instead. The next week, the Dayton Triangles were the team not wanting to play Muncie. In fact, the Flyers wouldn't play another APFA game that season. During the third week of league play, the Akron Pros would beat the Columbus Panhandles 37 to nothing in Akron. Rock Island would continue to destroy everyone, beating another team in the league, Hammond, 26 to nothing. Columbus 
Hammond, Muncie, and the Rochester Jeffersons, the most popular team in Western New York, wouldn't win a single APFA game that season. Just a few weeks into the year, it was apparent that the teams in the championship hunt would be the Dayton Triangles, the Rock Island Independents, the Akron Pros, the Racine Cardinals, the Buffalo All-Americans, and the Decatur Staleys. On October 17th, 1920, we had our first matchup between two good teams as the Decatur Staleys and Rock Island Independents would square off at Douglas Park in Rock Island, Illinois. After two games against non-league teams, the Decatur Staleys were finally playing against a fellow APFA member. The game was sloppy with a lot of fumbles and interceptions and players getting tired. The game is decided early as Decatur would recover a fumble and score a touchdown a few plays later. Rock Island would attempt a last-minute Hail Mary to try to tie the game, but it, it wouldn't work. The first big showdown of the APFA was in the books, and Decatur had beaten Rock Island 7-0. I wonder what the commercials were like. With the loss, Rock Island would fall behind the pack, despite winning their first three games by a combined score of 119-0. It just goes to show the talent discrepancies in the league. Heading into week six, we had Akron, Buffalo, and Decatur undefeated and untied with five wins apiece. The Dayton Triangles were also undefeated with three wins, but they had two ties. Rock Island had five wins, but had just lost to Decatur, putting them at five and one. The Canton Bulldogs were also in the discussion with three wins, one loss, and one tie. The Bulldogs' only loss had come against Akron, 10-0, and their tie was against Dayton. Where's the BCS formula when you need it? Because the schedule is dynamic and teams can play each other whenever they like, Decatur and Rock Island decide to play each other again three weeks after their 7-0 game. And this game is tough. Rock Island players Sid Nichols, Fred Chicken, and Oki Smith injure their knees on different plays. Harry Gunderson would be hit late by George Trafton, and he had to get 13 stitches on his face, and his hand was broken on the play. For all their trouble, the Decatur Staleys and Rock Island Independents in their rematch would play a scoreless draw. Keeping up with the top of the standings, we'd see the Akron Pros slip in their championship run, with a tie against the Cleveland Tigers 7-7. The Tigers had also tied the Dayton Triangles earlier in the year, but they just had one win heading into the game. But the Dayton Triangles did the Akron Pros a solid that same week. Dayton went to Rock Island, Illinois, and beat the Independents 21-0, which basically ended Rock Island's chance for a championship. The Decatur Staleys, their rival, remained undefeated with a record of five wins, zero losses, and one tie. By week nine, the APFA had some really important games coming up. The Akron Pros, Dayton Triangles, Buffalo All-Americans, and Decatur Staleys were all undefeated teams. Dayton had two ties, Akron had one tie, and Decatur had one tie. Right behind them would be the Canton Bulldogs, with six wins, one loss, and one tie. Behind them were the Racine Cardinals, with five wins, one loss, and one tie. And to make matters even more confusing on the voters, the Racine Cardinals had lost to Rock Island, and the Canton Bulldogs had lost to the Akron Pros. So this week, the Dayton Triangles were going to play the Akron Pros in Akron. The Canton Bulldogs were going to play the Buffalo All-Americans, another team at the top of the standings. So we're probably going to try to get some separation here. I'm telling you, if TV was around, this would have been some must-see football. 
These games, though, they'd only add more chaos. The Akron Pros beat the Dayton Triangles 13 to nothing. The previously undefeated Buffalo All-Americans, they'd lose 3 nothing to the Canton Bulldogs. During week 10, things would get even crazier with the scheduling. Many teams started playing two games a week. Dayton would play the Detroit Heralds on November 25th, and they won that game 28-0. Then, they wanted a rematch, and they played the Akron Pros just three days later at Triangle Park in Dayton. The Triangles would lose to Akron again, 14-0, which eliminated them from the championship picture. The Decatur Staleys would also get into playing two games in one week defeating the Chicago Tigers on November 25th, 6-0. Three days later, Decatur would suffer their first loss of the year to rival Racine. The Racine Cardinals had defeated the previously undefeated Staley's 7-6. Akron had a pretty good week, defeating the Canton Bulldogs 7-0, and then, as I just mentioned, they beat the Dayton Triangles 14-0, putting them out of contention. By the end of the craziness of Week 10, there were only a few teams with a chance for the championship. The Decatur Staleys had nine wins, one loss, and a tie. The Akron Pros had eight wins, no losses, and a tie. And the Buffalo All-Americans had eight wins and one loss. The next week, week 11, the Decatur Staleys would immediately avenge their loss from the previous week, defeating the Racine Cardinals 10-0. Buffalo would finish their season avenging their only loss of the year by defeating the Canton Bulldogs at the historic New York Polo Grounds 7-3. Both the Decatur Staleys and the Buffalo All-Americans would play one more game that season, and that game would be against the Akron Pros. Unfortunately for the Buffalo All-Americans, they would schedule that game to be the day after playing Canton, so they'd be playing their second game in as many days. Akron had a record of eight wins and one tie when they took on nine win and one loss Buffalo. The All-Americans were tired from their victory against the Bulldogs the day before. I mean, the Canton Bulldogs were a pretty good team. Before the start of the game, Bob Nash of Akron was actually sold to the Buffalo All-Americans for $300 and 5% of the game's gate. This would be the first trade in APFA history. The reason that the trade was necessary was because rain had caused a low amount of fans to turn out, and it didn't look like it would be very profitable for the Akron Pros to have made a trip to Buffalo. The rain would cause a sloppy game and a small crowd of about 3,000 people. The All-Americans would have a chance to score in the final minutes of the game after Akron's Fritz Pollard fumbled the ball and Heine Miller recovered it. Buffalo had the ball at the 12-yard line but the officials called the end of the game right there, and it resulted in a 0-0 tie. Akron and Buffalo would not have a winner in their contest. The Akron Pros would play their last game of the season the following week against the Decatur Staleys. Prior to the game, the legendary coach of the Decatur Staleys, George Hallis, you've probably heard of him, had hired Patty Driscoll from the Racine Cardinals to play on his team in order to try and defeat the Akron Pros, which, if it sounds like it's against the rules, that's because it was. 12,000 fans turned out for the game, which was the largest recorded crowd of the season. 2,000 were reportedly from Akron Pros player Fritz Pollard's hometown. Akron would almost score twice, having one called back because of an ineligible receiver. Decatur almost scored to take the lead, but Akron's Fritz Pollard would make a game-saving tackle in the third quarter. That same drive, Decatur would miss a 30-yard field goal. Things were getting so out of hand that Decatur's players were actually trying to injure Pollard in an attempt to remove him from the game. 
The Chicago Defender reported that the refereeing was biased towards Decatur. However, despite all that, the game ended in a 0-0 tie. There would also be no separation between Akron and Decatur. So what do we do? Chapter 3. No BCS, no problem. As there was no playoff system in the American Professional Football Association until 1932, a meeting would be held to determine the 1920 season champion. Each team that showed up would get a vote to determine the league winner. Since the Akron Pros never lost a game, the Pros were awarded the Brunswick Bulky Colander Cup on April 30, 1921. The trophy was a silver-loving cup donated by the Brunswick Bulky Colander Company. Each player from the Pros would be awarded with a golden fob, and this would be in the shape of a football and inscribed with 1920 world champions. The decision, however, came with controversy. The Staleys and All-Americans each stated that they should win the award because they had more wins than Akron and were never beaten by them. Without any APFA wins, the Muncie Flyers could not contend for the championship. However, that would not deter them. They found two local teams in Muncie to play them. They beat Gas City Tigers and the Muncie Offers More Athletic Club. In fact, they'd end up playing Gas City twice. With these wins, the Muncie Flyers would claim to have won the Indiana State Championship. The next season, the Flyers would open play by defeating the Elwood American Legion 74 to nothing. After that non-league win, they would play two more games in the American Professional Football Association. They'd lose them both and fold after the 1921 season. Also in 1921, the APFA would expand teams, adding Curly Lambeau's Green Bay Packers to the league. The next season in 1922, the American Professional Football Association would change its name. It would become the National Football League. They'd move their league offices from Canton to Columbus. With the move, they also named Columbus Panhandle's owner, Joseph Carr, as its new president. The 1920 champion Akron Pros would finish third in 1921 and then in 10th in 1922. The team would only finish higher than 13th one more time in 1925. They would play for four more seasons before disbanding due to a declining financial support and poor record. The first champion of the modern-day NFL would suspend operations in 1927 and surrender their franchise the next year. The Decatur Staleys would go on to become the Chicago Staleys. By 1922, with a move to Wrigley Field permanently, they'd change their name one last time, becoming the Chicago Bears. They are still in the National Football League. The rivals the Chicago Cardinals would be sold to Dr. David Jones, who would buy the team from its founding owner, Chris O'Brien, in 1929. In 1932, the team would be sold again, this time purchased by Charles Bidwell, who was then a vice president of the Chicago Bears. Needing cash, the Bidwells would entertain offers from various out-of-town investors, including Lamar Hunt, Bud Adams, Bob Housem, and Max Winter. However, these negotiations would come to nothing because the Bidwells wanted to maintain control of the team and were only willing to sell a minority stake. The guys who tried to buy the Cardinals would eventually get their own teams because they would form the American Football League. Suddenly faced with a serious rival, 
the NFL would quickly come to terms with the Bidwells, engineering a deal that sent the Cardinals to St. Louis, Missouri. Despite the presence of the St. Louis Cardinals, you know, the baseball team who we mentioned in episode three, they would keep their name and become the St. Louis Football Cardinals. They would stay there until they moved to Arizona in 1987. The Arizona Cardinals are still currently in the National Football League and are also still owned by the Bidwell family. By the late 20s, the Dayton Triangles were one of the NFL's doormats, winning just five of their last 51 NFL contests. Only the revenues from playing most of their games on the road would keep them afloat. At the same time, the NFL would begin shaking off its roots in mid-sized Midwestern towns. Although the Triangles were one of only three original NFL teams, along with the Bears and Cardinals, to survive in the 20s, they were the only team from the Ohio League to survive past 1926. It soon became apparent that Dayton was not big enough to support an NFL team in the burgeoning league. On July 12, 1930, a Brooklyn-based syndicate headed by Bill Dwyer would buy the Dayton Triangles. The franchise would move out of Dayton and into Brooklyn and would be renamed the Brooklyn Dodgers. This would lead to a sequence of events that would result in the creation of what is now known as the Indianapolis Colts. However, the NFL does not recognize the Colts to be a continuation of the Dayton Triangles. But you know what? I do. Fritz Pollard of Akron and Bobby Marshall of Rock Island were actually the first two African-American players in the modern-day NFL because they played in that 1920 season. They did this a full 27 years before Jackie Robinson would break the color barrier in Major League Baseball. In 2005, Fritz Pollard would be post-hominously introduced into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The Akron Pros were the first team in the history of the NFL APFA to complete a perfect season. Only four other teams have since accomplished the feat. The 1922 and 23 Canton Bulldogs, the 1929 Green Bay Packers, and the 1972 Miami Dolphins. In 1972, the NFL would change the rules so ties started to count as half a win and half a loss. If the modern NFL tie-breaking rules were in force in 1920, the Buffalo All-Americans would be co-champions with the Akron Pros. As both teams had the same winning percentage and the only game they played each other were tied, the Decatur Staleys would have finished third. If games against non-league teams were excluded, Akron would still win the championship and the Buffalo All-Americans and the Decatur Staleys would finish tied for second because they never played each other. Even though the Akron Pros were given the Brunswick Bulk Colander Cup in 1920, the league would lose track of this event and for a long time would publish in the NFL record books that the 1920 championship was undecided. It is not until the 1970s that the NFL would discover an early vote on awarding the Akron Pros the 1920 Professional Football Championship. Have a season you'd like featured on Good Hustle? Let me know at listentogoodhustle.com or follow me on Twitter at Andrew Mackey or on Instagram at hellomackey. And that's spelled M-A-C-K-E-Y. Good Hustle is created and hosted by Andrew Mackey. Research credits to Wikipedia, the Dayton Daily News, Dayton City News, and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You can support the show by visiting anchor.fm slash goodhustle to give. Have a good week, and I'll see you on Monday.